So you, you have to be patient and then you have to be patient with your people because maybe they don't learn as quickly as you learn and they don't have the whole experiences that you've had throughout your career. So I think patience is the one thing I've had to really just pause, slow down, because in basketball, you know, it's a 48 minute game, things are moving faster. You get paid on the first and the 15th, your check's never late. But with fundraising, it's a process. And that process, you know, some things happen sooner than others. And I, I think that's where I've grown the most. And that's how I want to encourage other CEOs. Just be patient. Hi, this is Avery Johnson, CEO of Avery Capital, retired NBA player and coach. I'm on the game plan. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. I am here with my co-host. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Jay. How are you? I am good, man. This was a really energizing conversation that we had with former NBA player and former NBA coach Avery Johnson and really got into a lot of the work that he's been doing with his real estate fund, Avery Capital. Yeah, this one was a real treat for me. So I've been fortunate enough to work with Avery now for the past few months uh, in my work as an advisor and investor at Overtime. Avery's also an advisor in the new platform, Overtime Elite OTE, which we talk about a little bit at the end. But through that work, found out about what he's doing now post kind of basketball, not just post as a player, you know, because he went on to be an excellent coach. I think people forget he was an NBA coach of the year with the Mavericks and had the Nets teams and then at Alabama. But, you know, he's a, he's kind of moved on from basketball. He still does some analyst work for CBS, but here he is, he's gotten heavy into real estate. And I think it's fair to say we were, we were both blown away by just the level of detail he could go into with what Avery Capital is doing. And one thing we actually talked a lot about was GSA. So I don't think, I don't know if we like defined it specifically. So help, help explain for our audience a little bit what GSAs are. Or what it is. Yeah, listen, I, I'm no real estate maven, but uh, the, the GSA stands for the General Services Administration, which is the nation's largest public real estate organization. And it provides workspace for, I think, more than a million and a half federal workers. Now, suffice to say, I think a lot of people don't realize that the government is actually one of the largest real estate holders in the U.S. And the GSA yeah. is working on behalf of, you know, all the agencies, all the acronyms you can think of, right? It's like FBI, DHS, DEA, FDA, right. like everybody. And and you think about from a real estate leasing standpoint, like the, the government will pay its rent on time, generally speaking, right? right? Like exactly. we, we're not going to have a problem. But then there are folks that uh, do need to back these assets to raise capital for them and collect on the leases. So it, it was a very, very fascinating asset class that, you know, again, we spend all of our time in high growth tech and startups. And when you really take a step back and realize, hey, if you're an LP and you're trying to build a balanced portfolio, you know, things that, that maybe startup people don't think about, like real estate and GSA, are actually really good asset classes to build a, a diversified platform. And uh, clearly Avery thinks so as well, because he's built a, a pretty large fund around it. Yeah. and. You know, one of my favorite things about our conversation with Avery it goes beyond 
you know, the fundamentals of Avery Capital, but really how he's taken leadership and team building from his basketball days and now brought it into the workplace. And it's, it's clearly led to success and, and really a culture that he's creating there. And I think our listeners are really going to benefit from having heard, heard that. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Tim, you know, one of the things, the, the longer I do this job as a VC, the, the more I realize that the job is less about identifying the best product or the best market. And, and clearly, obviously, those are, those are a big part of it. But when we as early stage VCs talk about like what our hierarchy is, we always say team, right? And usually that means the founder. But I think over time, it's like when the product is working and the customers want it, your job as a founder, your job as a CEO is just building a really great company that people want to work at. And so, so much of our conversation today with Avery was about management, was about identifying the right hires, was about building the right culture early on. All the stuff that he's done as a basketball coach and, and a leader on a basketball team, but now taking those management philosophies, those leadership philosophies, lessons that he's learned from watching Mark Cuban at the Mavericks and applying that into the business that he's building and obviously sharing with us so that our listeners can apply it in everything that they do. So uh, this was just a, a thrilling conversation, uh, you know, an MBA primer on management for you and I with, with, uh, with Coach Avery. And uh, with, without uh, further ado, let's get into our conversation with former NBA player and NBA coach Avery Johnson. Avery Johnson, thanks for joining us on The Game Plan. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Coach, I've gotten to know you a little bit over the past couple of months, and it's been a great experience. I've really enjoyed it. You know, you have this nickname, Little General, and one thing I've picked up on in working with you a little bit is just how amazing your structure, your focus, your energy is. Do you come from any sort of kind of military background, or, you know, where does that, where does that all come from, uh, your ability to stay so focused and deliberate in what you do? I think it comes from playing in the NBA and being undersized and making sure that you had a skill set or I had a skill set that could contribute to a team. Since I wasn't 7-1 and had the unbelievable athletic ability and uh, you know wasn't a prolific three-point shooter, I had to make up for it in other ways, being organized, disciplined, leadership, holding uh, teammates accountable, being able to communicate the messaging from the coaches to the players. And then when I became a coach, just making sure that uh, my teams were, you know, operating and with the right type of purpose and passion and desire, plain unselfish. So a lot of the skill sets that I learned from guys like Greg Popovich, you know, my dad, who, who was one of my obviously my mentors. So being around guys that were organized and disciplined and having the right focus, a lot of those lessons that were transferred to me, uh, I was able to put them into practice as a player, as a coach, and now as the, you know, the CEO of Avery Capital. Yeah. And we're really excited to talk to you about Avery Capital and the amazing things you're doing in business off the court. But since you touched on it, you know, you talk about this incredible experience, you know, and, and probably how most of our listeners know you, which is you world champion player with the Spurs. Then you went on to be an NBA coach of the year with the Mavericks. And then you also had this unique experience with the Nets where you're with, it, with them in New Jersey, brought them to Brooklyn, 
And then, of course, success at the college level, too, when you made the NCAA tournament with Alabama. And now we see how well Alabama's performed with a lot of the guys that you brought in there. So looking back at all of that, now that you're more in the, in the business world, focused on Avery Capital, when you think about your career in basketball, what's kind of the first thing that comes to mind or first experience across all of those that you really like to reflect on? Well, I like to reflect on just persevering. You know, basically, you know, I've been to the bottom and back. And, you know, everybody want to look at, you know, when you're playing golf, the putt going in the hole and you, and you make a birdie. But my ball has landed out of bounds. And I haven't <laughs> always hit my tee shot straight. But the end result has always been the in-between. You know, how you function in between failure and success. How do you function in between getting fired and a promotion? That in-between part is where all of the secret sauces are made. And that's where all the magic is in terms of your hard work and confidence and preparation. So that's been the, been the key for me. The, the in-between and being able to hang in there and hold on and fight and live for another day and, you know, fighting through adversity and because life has a way of throwing you some knockout blows. But we've been able to still stand because of how we've dominated those lonely days and tough nights, tough situations so that we could be an example and a role model of, uh, of perseverance. Yeah, Coach, I, I really appreciate that. And it's fascinating how 60 plus episodes of the game plan in, how the idea of process orientation comes to play with a lot of the athletes we talk to, right? There's the idea of goal orientation. A lot of people live their life and say, if I attain that job, if I you know close that deal, I'm going to be happy. And how often the athletes we talk to say, you got to be happy with the work that you put in every day. And then if the goal comes, it comes. I am curious, though, having you know been a player at the at the obviously college level, the professional level, having coached men at the professional level and at the college level, does that change depending on how big the stage is? Are you giving different advice to college students about their process versus the pros about their process, or is it roughly the same? No, it's a little bit different. So the game of basketball basically is the same. It's the same round ball, ten foot goal. You know, your teams from a basketball standpoint, you still want your players to pass the ball to their teammates. Don't You don't want them to pass the ball to the other team. That's called a turnover. <laughs> you still have to have the right coaching staff. You know, you got to develop players. and But on the college level, you're more responsible on a consistent around-the-clock basis for the student-athlete. OK, there's no turning it off in college basketball, academics, compliance, nutrition, basketball. You're dealing more with their parents. There's there's a more of an accountability model and a higher accountability model because you're dealing with teenagers where you're trying to grow them into manhood, uh, understanding responsibility, maturity, growth, development. So, and that's all year round, basically, except for the two or three weeks they go home for a break. But in the pros, you know, guys, basically, they want contracts. You know, when practice is over, they go home to their families. There's a true longer off season 
But with college, it's basically around the clock, all year round recruiting. You know, you're, you're, you're answering to an athletic director, a board of directors, a president of a university. Whereas on the NBA side, you're basically dealing with an owner and a general manager. So uh, even though it's basketball, it's two separate different worlds. I'm glad I've had a chance to experience both sides of it. And uh, it's actually helped me now that I've transitioned into uh, the private sector and, and private equity. I noticed as you were talking about perseverance, you use the word we, and that means something, right? Tell us a little bit about your unit and why, why it's a we. Yeah, it's a, it's a we because, you know, I've been married for almost 30 years. I met my wife 32 years ago at Southern University. And uh, we, you know, we have two very high achieving uh, kids. I have a 28 year old daughter who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a degree, double degree, Mandarin Chinese and business and economics through the Wharton wow. School of Business and a minor in geology. She went to work for BlackRock Investments for five years, and now she's a first year MBA student at Kellogg at Northwestern in Evanston. Uh, my son is another high achiever, undergraduate and graduate degree from the University of Alabama, played for me for three years. And now he's uh, parlayed his basketball career into Avery Johnson management, where he uh, is a one man band and he's the business manager for two very highly successful professional athletes, Devin Booker from the Phoenix Suns and Kyler Murray, the Heisman Trophy quarterback from Oklahoma, who's now leading the way for the Arizona Cardinals. So when I say we, that's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about our family. And uh, my wife has done a really incredible job at, at laying the groundwork and and putting and, and doing a great job, even when I've been traveling in the past, to really develop two very successful kids that that really have bright futures. Yeah, it sounds like you've got some competition. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a good driving force. So let's talk about that a little bit. Tell us about Avery Capital and how you got into this business. Yeah, Avery Capital um, it's, it's, uh, has a tremendous amount of momentum right now. You know, we started this over a year ago after I transitioned back to Dallas in May of 2019. This was at the recommendation of some a couple of my friends that are presidents of some large billion-dollar family offices here in Dallas. We 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 had a conversation about whether I was going to go back to coaching, and I said no. I'm looking forward to a new challenge, and they thought private equity and Avery Capital would be a really good landing place for me. And it's been tremendous. Avery Capital is a $100 million GSA anchored fund where we're buying federal buildings that are leased to the General Services Administration. We've closed the first round of our fund with about $17.5 million and subsequently have bought our first initial asset, which is a $16 million DEA building in Corpus Christi. We have another $5.5 million custom and border control building in Orlando that we have on the contract, a very robust pipeline, tremendous support from our LPs. We'll raise the rest of the fund by the third or fourth quarter of this year. And, uh, and then subsequently, we'll, we'll deploy about 80% of the capital sometime in 2022 
and we'll start on our second fund, which is going to be a $500 million uh, fund sometime around the third or fourth quarter of next year. That that is tremendous, Coach, and and I am um, I'm so curious because we know a lot of professional athletes while they're playing they get involved in real estate as sort of a secondary source of income, and a lot of times if there's a, a lockout or or you know there's some contract issues that income ends up being really valuable to these athletes as they are sort of tiding over between uh, between stints. I'd love to understand is that where you got your start in real estate? Is that where that passion grew out, or or would love to understand the background a little bit behind you know, where, where the, the, the sort of interest in real estate came from? Well, the passion grew out of, you know, when I returned to Dallas, I had a chance to sit on a couple of different advisory boards for real estate firms, whether it's multifamily, commercial real estate. Uh, just had a chance to learn more about the business and fell in love with it. And it's not just real estate. You know, what I, what I tell my team is we're not just a commercial real estate firm or fund. We, we, we are a technology company and we have to add value to our clients' portfolios. And if you're not adding value, somebody else will. So this is about adding value. This is about solving a problem. Our LPs had a, a little bit of a problem with a, a portion of their capital that was only receiving 50 basis points on their cash or one and a half percent on their treasuries and their bonds. We're giving them a, a couple of hundred points spread on their yield backed by the same full faith and credit of the United States government with these GSA assets that they haven't missed a rent payment in 72 years. So we're stabilizing and de-risking a portion of our uh, LP's portfolios and their capital, and that adds value to them. They can sleep at night knowing that that, that capital is protected. So what I tell my team all the time, this, has, this is not just about commercial real estate. This is about adding value. This is about improving our technology and the way we deliver our analytics and um, our story to our current and potential investors. Yeah, that, so so that's a great line of thought because Tim and I are both early stage investors, and obviously, you know, we we discuss with LPs who want to get exposure to the tech sector, and you're starting to see a lot of whether it's family offices or even larger institutions, they want that that growth access. And on the other hand, I think the conversation that you're having is about risk management, which is, hey, great, you go pursue those assets, but we, we see where the market goes. I'd love to understand your conversation with, with LPs. What ends up being the biggest pushback? Is it they are not interested in risk management or is, is it something else entirely when, when you're having those conversations? Well, I think from our situation, a lot of our LPs don't understand the GSA. So they don't understand okay. this is a very niche market. It's hard to get into. The contracts are very difficult. They just don't understand. They understand multifamily. They understand yeah. workforce housing. You know, they understand the stock market for the most part. They understand bonds. You know, maybe they don't understand NFTs or Bitcoin <laughs> or Dodgecoin. But no, so nobody it, understands NFTs, so let, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just a matter of educating them to understand to where they have the confidence that their capital is going to be protected, that we have a very comprehensive 
but simple exit strategy that our potential buyers of Avery Capital will pay a premium for this fund because these assets always renew or for 90% of the time they re the GSA renews these leases. So they're going to have significant cash flow for the next 15, 20 or 30 years. So I think the pushback for us is just educating our potential investors on uh, what the GSA is and how this could really provide a steady quarterly dividend. And, um, and then we're going to have a liquidity event in, in, in the future that they are going to be really excited about. Yeah, and maybe for our listener who who is unfamiliar with this asset class, if you can give us like a, a brief primer on on how, how exactly the the GSA works and maybe like what what the time horizon is, right? Because I think you know with, with venture, for example, we have to educate LPs that haven't been in the space. We're like, look, you know, we're going to capital outlay for six years, and then it'll take six to twelve years for any of those things to return. And sometimes the time horizons are the hardest conversations to have with LP. So maybe help us understand how your capital outlay to the GSA works and maybe what the time horizons are for when you see returns. Well, here, here's the, 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 the simple formula. The federal government controls over 300 million square foot of real estate. Okay? They're the largest land real estate holder in, in, in the United States. The GSA controls about 17 to 20% of that. The 10 largest aggregators in the GSA owns over 100 million square foot of GSA space. That's people like Boyd Watterson. USAA's number one producing fund is their $3 billion GSA fund. Okay? Hmm. So this particular asset class uh, has had a tremendous run uh, of success. So basically, you're buying cash flow. You're, so once you buy the asset, once you close on it, it's like turning on a spigot. You don't need to even invoice the GSA. You just get a <laughs> you just get a a check every month. And basically, after you pay all of your expenses, property management, everything, then you have a net return. And then that return is added up quarterly, and then our LPs get a quarterly uh, dividend. And, and the more yeah. buildings we buy, the, the more their dividends will increase. So it's really simple. We buy these assets, cash flow, we're buying 100% occupied GSA assets. We, our underwriting criteria is very strict. We only buy an assets that are eight years firm term or more, underwrite to an 8% IRR, underwrite to a 9 or 10% cash on cash return. And if it doesn't meet those requirements, we can't buy it. So our, mm. we're playing disciplined basketball. We're playing fairway golf. We're not hitting the ball in the trees. We're not taking half court shots. It's a really disciplined approach. Avery, I imagine when prospective investors or other people you're dealing with as it relates to Avery Capital meet you for the first time, they're obviously excited. You know, they, they know somewhat about your career, either as a player or as a coach, or at the very least, they've heard you as an analyst during March Madness. How quickly or, or how, how soon is it where they 
their jaw kind of drops because they realize how well educated you are on this, how well you know this stuff and that they can really trust you on, on the business side, not just for what a great player you were. Yeah, I, I get that, Tim. I get that about 85% of the time. It's like, whoa, did you did you go to Harvard? I said, no, my daughter went to Penn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you went to Harvard Business School. Yeah. You know, have you been working for BlackRock Investments or J.P. Morgan Chase? How long did you work at Goldman Sachs? I said, no, I'm sorry, I haven't. I said, but I'm a pretty fast learner. And uh, I, this has been a 24-7 deal. And, you know, around the clock, you know, seven days a week, basically. And I'm really passionate about it. I say, but the one thing that's really excited about what we're doing, I have a very smart, diverse team. And basically, everybody, Tim, has a chance to star in their role. So I'm basically the Avery Capital Investment Relationship Manager. That's my role. And my team keeps me in my role. But my co-founder, he's, he's had a tremendous 17-year experience with commercial real estate. He's been a GSA broker, our COO. She worked for 21 years with the GSA, came to work for us August of last year. She knows all the brokers, the contracts. We have a full-time GSA consultant that lives in Denver. We have a property manager that's been a property manager in the GSA for 20 years, but he's also a developer and he's got $180 million worth of GSA assets coming to market in the next 18 months. Our anchor investor who's invested up to 10% of our $100 million with us to help us launch. They have a tremendous amount of experience and and. They've been around for a long time and they're very well respected. So the the beauty of this is we've been able to assemble an all-star caliber team. That's one of my strengths. And that's why the folks that have helped us launch thought this would be a success because I know how to identify talent and allow those talented people to really star in their roles. And that's what we've done. Well, let's expand on that a bit more. Help us understand what your principles are for leadership and team building. Well, I think the first couple of things that come to mind is I like to hire people that have strong character, you know, because that's honesty, integrity, hard work is all the byproduct of of your character. I try to identify people that have competitive spirit. All right. I, I want people on our team that hate to lose more than they love to win. Just I just want mm. there's something about your competitive spirit. I, w- I want you to hate to lose more than you love to win. But I also want you to care about other people, not just about uh, paycheck. I want you to care about people. I want you to care about serving our LPs more than a promotion, okay? I think our team, and we're getting better at this, we have to understand how to resolve conflict because conflict is going to happen. We're going to have disagreements, different opinions. We have to fight through adversity. So when I'm looking at identifying talent, and, and, 
And at the end of the day, <laughs> just sometimes have common sense. Yes, I want you to be competent. I want you to be smart, student of what we're doing, but just common sense. So those are a lot of the attributes that I look for when I'm trying to identify talented people. Yeah, Coach, I mean, it's it's um, such a tough thing, and we hear this from a lot of CEOs that, that Tim and I work with, because, you know, when, when you get to a certain stage where the product is working and, you know, people want what you're selling, now it's about hiring and scaling up very quickly. And the, the challenge I hear from a lot of CEOs, especially when they're trying to hire, let's say, an executive or somebody who's senior, is that it's hard to assess some of those things in an interview process. What are the ways in which you go and, and identify things like, culture fit or or things like competitive spirit or even assessing whether they're going to fit in from a conflict standpoint? Uh, you know, are there certain tactics that you've identified that, that people can fast track the way they identify these things? Yeah, there's several things. I, I would say I'm a big eye contact person. I like to look at eye contact, body language. I want to see if, if you're really convicted about what you're saying, you know, because I do a little work with CBS Sports. And when I'm on the air, you know, for example, I had Oklahoma when they beat Missouri or North Texas when they beat Purdue. You know, people, one thing I love about the feedback I'm getting from fans and the executives from CBS, they, they love when I am convicted about something. You know, if there's a call mm. or they go to the referees, go to the monitor, you know, is the ball in? Is it a block charge? Is it go to? They love when you're convicted. That's what I'm looking for when I'm interviewing somebody. I, I want to see how convicted you are about what you believe. I, I, I think I do a good job of asking good questions. And yeah. you know, it may be a simple question as, would you rather have 50, would you rather have 50% of a watermelon or a hundred percent of a grape? <laughs> I just want to get their feet. I want to see how their brain works. Okay. Yeah. I want to, I want yeah. to see how their brain works. So I think I do a good job of asking the right questions. I want to see people that are convicted and, and passionate. But the main thing is I, I want to find out what were the situations that became problematic in your life and how did you solve mm. it? How was it, yeah. you know, how was it resolved? I want to see how you worked out of that, those type of situations. So I think I do a good job of being a really good listener, and, and but I think the main thing is I do a really good job of asking the right questions. Yeah, and I also want to touch on the importance of relationships, which you mentioned. You know, we all kind of hear growing up, "Hey, be good to people," or, or you know, "Don't don't be better than don't think you're better than anyone else." And you know, my understanding is you've kind of always lived your life that way, even though you've been in a position where maybe you could could potentially look down on somebody or, or, or whatnot as a professional athlete or as a, a coach of an NBA team. But what's a maybe unexpected way your care for relationships over the years has now come to light in this new role? Well, a lot, a lot of people have said, why have you maintained a really good relationship with Mark Cuban? I say, why not? Their answer would be he fired you. My answer is he hired me. If Mark wouldn't have hired me, nobody would have ever known that I could coach. And the lessons that I learned from Mark as a coach and a manager and a leader, because it was more than just about coaching basketball. 
you know, you're running a billion, two billion dollar operation and you're, you're dealing with people, you're managing people. Okay, it's not you're not just managing basketball players. So I think in my relationships, you know, Greg Popovich, I won a championship with Pop, and then they didn't have enough or a spot for me to resign, and I had to go sign with another team. But Pop and I still have a really good relationship. So when when you know Alabama, Alabama with four or five of my players that I've either recruited and or coached made it to the Sweet 16, but there doesn't have to be any bitterness towards Alabama because my time expired, okay? And when I'm interviewed about at Alabama basketball, there's no, there's no bitterness or anything involved. You know, we've, we've turned the page there, and those kids need to have an opportunity to thrive, and, and that staff need to have a chance to be successful. So I, I think the main thing is still maintaining healthy relationships even when there has been a separation. Separation doesn't need to be aggravation. And hopefully mm. I'm modeling that in my current relationships today. Coach, I'm loving this. This is like uh, neither neither Tim or I have an MBA. This is like a management crash course for, for both of us. So we appreciate <laughs> you getting into it with us. You know, I, I would love to understand from you, uh, especially because we know a lot of the folks that listen to the show are CEOs or executives and working in startup roles. What is the sort of one the hardest lesson learned about management or, or maybe things that as a manager you feel like people don't do soon enough that you would recommend uh, as you've gone through your experience now as, as managing people, not just coaching, but managing organizations? What is the lesson there? Well, I think the hardest lesson is my mom used to tell me all the time that Rome wasn't built in a day that you have to be patient. My patience has been significantly tested now as the CEO of Avery Capital because things just don't mm. happen overnight. Uh, when you're out <laughs> trying to raise money and you're telling your story as beautiful as it is, you gotta be patient, you gotta massage it. You know, when you're talking to, when you're talking to an institutional group, Institutional groups, and they may have a CEO or president, but they have a bunch of consultants that are under those institutions that make recommendations. And with those recommendations, you may, there's a possibility there's a third meeting, a fourth meeting, a fifth meeting, just for them to get to a yes or a no, or not yet. So you, you have to be patient, and then you have to be patient with your people because maybe they don't learn as quickly as you learn and they don't have the whole experiences that you've had uh, throughout your career. So I think patience is the one thing I've had to really just pause, slow down, because in basketball, you know, it's a 48-minute game. Things are moving faster. You get paid on the 1st and the 15th. Your check's never late. But with fundraising, <laughs> it's a process. And that process, you know, some things happen sooner than others. And uh, I, I think that's where I've grown the most. And that's how I want to encourage other CEOs, just be patient. Yeah, and, and I guess building off of that, as you have made the transition now over the last two years away from the sports world into, you know, the, the, the business world, the real estate world, 
What's been the biggest difference or what surprised you the most about how those two different ecosystems operate? Well, I don't think, well, I would say the one thing that surprised me is still all about teamwork. And whether it's Avery Capital, basketball, you got to have teamwork. And you, you, you have to have really good, you got to have a quarterback. You got to have a point mm. guard. Okay, and the point guard and the quarterback needs to be synchronized with the coach and the coach needs to be synchronized with the general manager and the coach, the GM and the general manager. They need to be synchronized with ownership. There's no surprise. You know, last night um, I had a chance to go attend a fundraiser at Clark Hunt's home, Clark and Tavia Hunt, the Kansas City Chiefs home. There's no surprise that the Kansas City Chiefs are a model of consistency in the NFL. There's no surprise the Spurs have been a model of consistency for years. And, and you know, teams like, obviously, the New England Patriots and the, uh, the Mavericks. And I, I, I just think there's, there's a, some common denominators in terms of the teamwork and the synergy and the connectivity that all of those programs have. And I think whether you're in business, basketball, you got to have it. And it's got to be there if you want to have an opportunity to be successful. Hmm. Well, Coach, you've been so gracious with your time. So we'll wrap with one question that we would like to ask all our guests. And we should really value this one because of the successful outcomes you know both your kids are experiencing. And the question is, you know, what's a piece of advice, knowing everything you know now, that you'd give your younger self? Failure isn't final unless you quit. Just hmm. failure isn't final unless you quit. Just don't quit. Don't quit on yourself. Don't quit on yourself. That's, that's when you really need to be selfish. Don't quit on yourself. No matter what you've done, roadblocks you've run into, bad decisions that you've made, bad days that you've had, just failure isn't final unless you quit. And that's what I would tell, continue to tell my younger self. I love that. And I think it's especially pertinent for our world, working with startups a lot. And I think in a lot of ways, failure has been kind of glorified, but I actually like the way you you frame it, which is, you know, learn from failures. And again, failure is not final and, and I unless would say, you quit. You know, don't don't allow people to box you in, put you in the box. Part of what I'm dealing with right now is there are certain groups of people that cannot get their minds wrapped around. I'm not coaching basketball. I'm still coach Avery but I'm coaching a different team. And I have the ability to learn and grow and develop at 56, a whole nother platform in a sector of business. So don't box me into just being a basketball coach. Okay. That just- I love that. And and even with, some of, you know, I'm, guys, look, I'm an advisor 
went overtime. And their new program that's been announced is all in the media now called Overtime Elite. We're, we're going to make the difference, a difference in the lives of a lot of young high school players. And we're offering them and their families something they've never seen before. But it took leadership to think outside the box and to not box yourself in. And the byproduct of that is we've, we've had significant fundraising. We're going to be seated and we're, we're going to have a, a first class operation. We hired Kevin Alley as our coach. We have recruiters and health folks and, and, and trainers and strength and conditioning and first class housing and academic support for these young men. You know, they're going to get compensated and they're, we're going to help them grow their plan. And hopefully we'll be able to deliver a better product to the, the, the G League Ignite and the NBA after that. And these kids will be able to be able to transform and monetize their brand. But somebody had to think outside the box. And I think that's critically important. Yeah, absolutely, Coach. Absolutely. It's, it's clear how passionate uh, you are about not only Avery Capital, but the work that, that you are doing inspiring these young men. And I think sometimes it's just about having somebody that, that you know folks can look up to and say, at 56, you know, Avery's pursuing a new career. He's bringing all the lessons he's had in his past careers to do this. And I think that just serves as inspiration that it's never too late to go after something new, to teach yourself something new. So we want to thank you again, Coach, for joining us on the game plan today, for sharing your wisdom, your management lessons. And uh, we hope to stay connected as you grow Avery Capital over the years. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Avery. That's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. A couple of quick shout-outs before you go. First, a huge thanks to Coach Avery Johnson for joining us today to share his journey. You can learn more about his private equity fund at averycapitalre.com. As always, our thanks to our producer, Luca Vasic, for editing this episode, and to Sam Charlton, as well as the team at Sport Techie for packaging and promoting it. Hey, if you're still listening, you must really love The Game Plan. You can find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan.